Welcome back to Collateral Banter, episode 31. I'm your host, Danny T. And on this episode, I want to continue the conversation on modern-day capitalism, where we are, how I think we got here. I want to talk about this because I've been reading the news for the last couple weeks, and I've seen a couple articles about billionaires worried about the current state of capitalism. Now, obviously, I think they're worried about that because they own $18 billion or $30 billion, and that's a lot of money. And when you start seeing that economic wealth is concentrated among a very tiny population of Americans and 60 to 80% of Americans aren't benefiting from the system, it's not surprising that you reach a point where people begin to say, hey, what's that socialist saying? Hey, what's that fascist saying? Hey, what's that authoritarian saying? Hey, what's that makes a lot of sense. I think we're reaching a point where inequality is growing and reaching levels that we haven't seen since 1929. And the levels currently are going to surpass historic levels of inequality. They're going to surpass what we had in 1929 very soon. And unless there's a new social contract, anything is possible. Anything can happen. And some are worried about a revolution. A revolution. Now, I'm not saying this. You don't have to take my word for it. I'm going to post the links to these articles that I found recently about billionaires worried about the current economic system. And it should give people pause regardless of your political beliefs or regardless of your political ideologies that billionaires are terrified about the state of capitalism. And so I'm just going to read a little bit from the article just to give you a flavor of what's being said. One of the first people to discuss this is the founder of Bridgewater, the world's biggest hedge fund. His name is Ray Dalio. And Ray wrote on his LinkedIn page, I believe that all things taken to an extreme can be self-destructive, that everything must evolve or die. This is not true for capitalism. And Ray is joined by Jamie Dimon, Warren Buffett, and even Stephen Schwartzman, a bunch of investment gurus and private equity persons, that when you look at the data, income inequality is reaching a critical juncture, a breaking point. It's a point that may end up leading to radical new systems. Radical solutions are on the map. And it's it's really interesting. In this Guardian article I was reading, I saw that Stephen Schwartzman, who they labeled in this article as a private equities designated villain, he is coming out and saying that the middle class needs a Marshall Plan, one large program that the United States used to help rebuild Western Europe. And that's what he's saying the middle class needs right now. And I'm going to cite here what Ray Dalio has in his 8,000-word LinkedIn account which I think has caught the attention of quite a few news articles. Here's what he points out. 
40% of all Americans would struggle to raise $400 in the event of an emergency. Childhood poverty rate in the United States is now 17.5% and has not meaningfully improved for decades. U.S. scores lower than virtually all developed countries other than Italy and Greece on educational attainment. The U.S. incarceration rate is nearly five times the average of other developed countries, three times that of emerging countries. And for those at the bottom 60%, premature deaths are up by 20% since 2000. That is just a quick highlight of economic issues that we face. Okay, here's what Ray Dalio said in his article. So they're quoting his blog post on LinkedIn. The last time that this configuration of influence existed was in the late 1930s when there were, when there were great conflicts and economic and political systems were overturned. And the author of this article in The Guardian wrote, you know things are bad when billionaires reach for Hitler analogies. I'm not laughing, but I do think that's a little funny. So we got here through a process that people are going to be debating for the next 20, 30, 50 years of the exact cause. Even people on the left don't agree. People on the right don't agree the level of how much it was the business cycle that is inherent to capitalism, what is government role in funding and securitizing mortgages and loans. Look, everybody's going to reach out for one thing. Regardless, we are where we are because the economy tanked in 2008. People's savings, homes, essentially the way the system I see it is working is people's wages haven't increased for 30, 40 years. They've been stagnant. And I am going to explain in a future episode why that is happening. But people don't often answer that. But it's going to take a little bit of time. But there are some interesting ideas out there because rarely do we talk about why that's happening. But essentially what happened is if you look at wages and you look at productivity, how much people are producing, they're growing together historically since World War II until about the mid-70s. And then what happens is productivity continues to increase. But wages begin to decline. And what you see in the 1970s, and I believe the date would be 1973, is you begin to see the shift of we were importing technology, but we saw that labor unions began to decline. And factories and other jobs that paid a decent income, that paid a middle class life, life for, for workers, also shifted. So what happened was they shifted from the Northeast and New York, and they went down to the South, where there was less regulation, lower taxes, cheaper land, and fewer labor unions. And those that still wanted to make more profits, they shifted production to China and Mexico, and other countries, Brazil, South Africa. This isn't to say that these companies... For example, Ford factory wasn't abroad in the 40s and 50s. Of course they were. But in the 70s and especially in the 80s, production began to shift, expand globally. And so that made people very wealthy. People who owned shares, the business owners, the managers, it made a lot of sense to them. You can go shift production. Look, another country doesn't have the environmental regulation doesn't have, at that time in the 70s, didn't have the labor unions America had. America forgets that in, I believe, in 1953, 
25% of the private sector labor force was labor unions. And so that's, that figure, from what I've seen now, has collapsed the single digits. And what they did is demand that some of the income, some of the wealth, that the company produced be redistributed to the workers who work in them. That's what the labor unions did. And so you've begun to see that a lot of the gains, as they've shifted production abroad, has gone to the shareholders and to the business owners, to the managers and the executives, and they're wealthy beyond belief, and they want to perpetuate and continue that system. So they've many ways used their money to go buy the political process, and they've now owned the political system that is the ones who could create the law, changed the regulations in order to create a more equitable uh, field. And now we've expanded the system that began in the 70s and 80s to what I think we've now reached is a critical point, a critical juncture in the way production is done, that people's wages still aren't increasing. Yes, they've gone up, they've ticked up slightly above inflation, what they call real wages which is the growth in wages over inflation, they've only begun to tick up now, which they did a little bit in the 90s. But the vast majority of wealth oftentimes is to those who own stocks, those who own capital, essentially. Those who own capital are making a killing in this economy. And after the Trump tax cuts, they'll be making more wealth. And what you see is this attempt by, I think, a lot of these billionaires to come to terms and to really understand this process that we're in. However, the solutions they're, they're talking about to this problem are solutions people have been discussing now for 10, 20 years. We need to improve the educational system. We, we need to empower uh, these low-income neighborhoods, empowerment zones, and invest in those. And I don't think that any of these alone are, is going to solve the problem, and I think they know it. Maybe if the political system agreed with all of these problems, they could implement them all. But no, it's not happening. Again, this is even, so it's an economic crisis, but at the same time, nothing politically is going to pass, given that to pass most things in the Senate, you're going to need 60 votes. And I just don't see that happening anytime soon to, again, try to remedy these economic inequality and indicators that I have to discuss in more detail. I, I read a book called It Could Happen Here, America on the Brink by Bruce Judson. And when I saw this at a bookstore, I've read it now twice, and the author is a senior faculty fellow at the Yale School of Management. And his book frightened me when I read it, because here, here is just from the back cover of his book. Here's what it says in 2009. So just a year after. The severe economic downturn has been blamed on many things. Deregulation, derivatives, greedy borrowers, negligent lenders. It could be be a deeper problem that is so severe, so long-lasting, and so dangerous that it makes these problems look like minor swerves in the road. Could we be facing an existential challenge to the promise of America and to our system of government? Inequality in America has reached historic highs. Throughout human history, this level of disparity has proven intolerable, almost always leading to political upheaval. Though many believe America will never face a second revolution, that our politics are stable, in It Could Happen Here, Yale School of Management senior faculty fellow 
Bruce Judson makes the case that a revolution is a real possibility here, driven by a 30-year unprecedented rise of inequality through six presidents, three federal chairmen, three recessions, and, and many years of expansion. The last time inequality rivaled current levels was 1928, just before the crash and the Great Depression. Today we're in worse shape, divided into a tiny plutocracy of the super-rich on the one hand, and a fragile, indebted, and unprotected former middle class on the other. As Judson shows, revolution can occur suddenly, as happened with the Soviet Union 19-1 dissolution, and, and America today exhibits the central precursors to a collapse. Extreme income inequality in an increasing impoverished middle class. It makes the most disturbing case yet for why our economics are leading us inevitably towards a devastating crisis. When Franklin Roosevelt faced a similar situation, he was saved by World War II. This time, the conflict may be at home, not abroad. This is just one professor's opinion. The fact that he's coming from the Yale Business School is what also caught my attention. And now you're seeing articles written by billionaires talking about this situation reaching epic and a breaking point. And it's so interesting to also see is that the popularity of both a, a person like Trump in 2016, but also Bernie Sanders among Democrats. Because when you hear Bernie, the Democrats have talked like this, but they were usually fringe candidates that never made it more than, what, 10, 15, 20% of the of the Democratic voting base. And now with Bernie Sanders, you see Bernie was competing with Hillary, won many states, and you've now begun to see a shift that the, this is all from the crisis of 2008 and the fallout from it. And it's going to be a difficult challenge because I don't believe that if you just begin to invest more in education, you'll be able to fix this problem. Maybe in 20, 30 years, there'll be slightly less income inequality, but I don't believe that to be true because think about it, even if you're investing in education and people are getting better jobs and productivity is growing, are they going to be sharing in, in that productivity growth or is it all going to be concentrated among those that own capital, those, those that own shares, those that own stock markets and hedge funds and all of those things? They're the ones accumulating all the gains from productivity. So I don't see how this current system is going to last in the future. And I foresee that one day there will be people rallying and coming together from different political perspectives. But they will say, you know what? There's something wrong with this system. The system is the problem. And they might not have a solution, but they won't get to the solution until they see who wins upon the system collapsing on itself. And that's how many people today are beginning to interpret the rise of Trump. So I'm not sure I have the solutions, but I do feel that this is one of the bigger problems that we're facing. It needs to be certainly dealt with in in ways we haven't been able to. And given the, the political system and the political stagnation that we have, people's lives are dependent on how this is resolved. I, it would be really interesting. I think we're going to see a barometer of this, uh, depending on who the Democrats choose to be their nominee. Will it be somebody more to the left, more on the progressive wing, more of the left wing? And they, can they capture the activist vote and the votes in the middle against Trump for something new? And so far, it seems like the Democratic establishment is fearful of these candidates because they believe, like like in 2016, that if you run a moderate, they will be able to defeat Donald Trump. 
I'm not so sure that's true. Hillary reined in her most extreme views in hopes that in showing the electorate, look, Trump is too unstable. I believe in the American people, their ability to see that. And then we saw what happened. Trump turned out the base, he turned out his voters, and he won in those critical states in the Midwest. And I'm not sure that somebody like a mainstream candidate, been in the party for a long time, will be able to excite voters and win. So Nancy Pelosi, during an interview, was asked about the progressives in her party and then claimed that she's also a progressive, too. Well, she identifies as a progressive. However, this is another idea that I have yet to make sense of, and I don't know how people feel about this. But what is a progressive? And until there's a somewhat of a clear definition of it, anybody can claim to be a progressive if they have if they're a Democrat, right? You can just claim, hey, I'm a progressive. Nancy Pelosi's a progressive, just like Elizabeth Warren. And the key question is, are you a progressive if you support? invasions, war. We're, we're talking about that now in either Venezuela or Iran. Does that make you a progressive? Because there has to be basic parameters that say, look, if you believe in these two or three, two or three ideas, you're a progressive. If you don't believe in these, you can be a liberal, but you're not a progressive. So in my opinion, in my view, and the way I understand politics is there are two camps within the Democratic Party. There is the progressive left-wing base, and there is a liberal center-left base. And that's the way I make sense of it. And their key distinguishing characteristic is the Democrats, they tend to believe more in capitalism. They want to be incremental, not more radical change. They want more government spending, but they don't want government to be doing major production in the private economy. So in some ways, the liberals are trying to to keep that centrist vote together. And, and that's been the tension in the party for a long time. It's not, I'm not saying anything new. The difference is the scale of which the government is supposed to invest in the economy. So that's the way I distinguish between progressives and liberals. But people, I'm sure, can figure out their own ways. And people can call themselves whatever they want. But to me, I, it just doesn't make sense. Look, the most moderate Democrat can call themselves a progressive. There has to be a a few defining characteristics of what it means to be a progressive. But as we fight those, income inequality is getting worse. People's health care benefits. I, I foresee that if we continue on this trajectory of cutting, of cutting people's health care benefits, gutting those without replacing and giving them full coverage, and they're not gaining benefits in work, and people's economic lives are worsening, their kids are doing worse than their parents, you're going to reach a breaking point that no, there's no history book to give us any guide about what will happen. It will be a terrifying event. Many people may die. The country could be in absolute turmoil. You won't see things on the shelves. You will see a radical reshaping of the country. And that's definitely in the possibility. People don't like to talk about that, but people know that that is a real possibility in the country, given the problems we have. And people can deny that that's happening. But you know what? Many people deny that Trump could win. And now we've seen that he did. And people can put their head in the sand and ignore reality of what's going on throughout the vast majority of the country, what they call flyover country, at their own peril. All right, I got to go. 
But I've really enjoyed doing this episode, and I will continue to talk about these issues in future episodes. Thanks again for listening. Episode 31, Collateral Band to Danny T. Hope you appreciate it. Take care. Peace.